If you have a Black Pew Bible and you would like to turn so that you can follow along with us, you will find the reading on page 878. Uh, We're also going to put it up on the screen. It's four whole verses. Again, we've been studying John 17. It is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This glimpse of Jesus praying over His disciples, praying over those who would follow Him. Even on the eve of His arrest. John chapter 17, verses 20-23, through we find these words. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in you and you in me, so that they may be brought to completion as one. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. So we live in a divided world, perhaps you've noticed. Everywhere we look, everywhere we turn, there is division, there is conflict. People seem to be growing further and further apart. I mean, we see that politically. We live in a time of of politically charged discontent. And it's a time of political polarization. Right? Whether it's red or blue, each side is becoming more extreme. And in many ways, that extremeness is a response to the other side that is dividing people. There's less and less common ground in our political sphere. But we see it also economically, where those who have are becoming further and further separated from those who have not. That those who have resources and affluence are able to invest and make sound decisions to preserve and increase wealth, while those who don't have wealth are trapped in a system that either prevents their escape or de-incentivizes it. And the distance between the two groups continues to grow more divided. We even see this racially in our headlines. In this last decade, we've seen a resurgence of racial tensions. Tensions we wish had been resolved a generation ago. And as much as we'd like to say we're making progress here, the headlines and our own hearts reveal that the divide is still there. We live in a divided world. The world is broken again and again and in so many ways. It's breaking apart into disparate pieces and the world is losing hope. We live in a world that is longing for unity. Longing for togetherness. Coca-Cola has been selling us on this since you know, the mid-70s. They've wanted to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'm just not sure a sugared, syrupy drink can deliver on the promise of world peace. We even see post-credit scenes in a movie like Black Panther that says we must find a way to look after one another as if we were one single tribe. It's our social consciousness to want unity, to long for unity. 
We've just yet to find something upon which this unity can be reliably based. What if? What if the most attractive thing about being a follower of Jesus, what what if the most beautiful evidence of a life given over to God, what if the most compelling picture of God's love for the world was the unity of God's people? True unity, not some watered-down version where we just pretend that everything's the same, we just pretend that everybody's okay. Why just can't we all just get along? Where we water down any strong conviction or belief so as not to offend. But rather, the true unity of right relationships with one another that are built upon a right relationship with God. A true unity that is possible only as a divine gift from our Creator. It has to be of divine origin. We've got thousands and thousands of years of human history to say we haven't figured it out and it doesn't look like we're going to figure it out anytime soon. Because human attempts at unity based on our wisdom, based on our ideas of what we think a utopian society should look like, based on you know, a, an emerging philosophy or our vision of the future, our human attempts at unity, they don't work. Human attempts at unity are are a zero-sum game. By that I mean, for one side to win, the other side has to lose. Right? We're talking about a division between two points of view or two frameworks. Here's A and here's B, and they're not getting along very well. And human attempts at wisdom and unity say, well, let's make A win. Let's adopt A's posture and philosophy and worldview. But that necessitates that B becomes the loser in the game. If we impose A, B loses. At least until B gets so fed up that they revolt, they throw a revolution, and then B wins, and A ends up being the loser. And then you say, no, what they need is compromise. And so you put A and B together, and what you're left with is this weird blend that you can't really tell what was A, what was B. Neither one of them are actually very satisfied. They've both had to give up part of their identity and their conviction. And it's this watered-down place where there's just no, there's no satisfaction. They both feel like losing, and there's a growing resentment. But what if there is a unity that comes from God? And it's a unity that that doesn't compromise. It doesn't have A as the winner. And it doesn't have B as the winner. What's interesting is that in God's economy, A and B have both lost. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is not a game that we can win. And when we try... It's more of an exercise of power than of unity. But in God's economy, there is something that can give us unity, and that something is actually a someone, and his name is Jesus. And it is a transcendent reality that is higher than humanity that specializes in resurrection, that can bring both A and B back from the dead, and then to bring them together under the lordship of Jesus. 
And this is not A winning. This is not B winning. This is Jesus being victorious over all and bringing A and B together under His Lordship in such a way that they retain their distinctiveness and yet find unity under Christ's Lordship. And the reason they can be there together is because they remember that they're broken. They remember that they were lost. And all parties cast their hope on Jesus. See, A and B are invited into a reality and a unity that is higher than both of them and higher than any human idea or philosophy or worldview. It is a place of humility, of receiving the free gift of God's grace. And that yields a unity that is better and greater and more real than either side winning would ever produce. So here we come to our text. Jesus is in the upper room. He's just celebrated the Last Supper with His disciples. He's given them His words of farewell. And now we hear Him praying. And he's praying over his disciples. And we've been listening in and sort of extrapolating to say, how does that apply to us? But in our text this morning, we don't have to extrapolate anymore. Because Jesus shifts gears in his prayer and by verse 20, he prays directly for us. He says, my prayer is not for just these disciples here right with me, not just for them alone. He says, I'm praying also for those who will believe in me through their message. See, he's praying for all those who will hear the good news about Jesus. From the days of those disciples right through to today and all the way until Jesus returns and takes us home. He's praying for us. And what is His prayer for us in this text? He prays that all of them may be one. Father, just as You are in Me and I am in You. Jesus is praying for unity. Right relationships with one another that are built upon a right relationship with God. Because Jesus knew that true God-centered unity was going to be so desperately needed in the world. So deeply longed for. And He knows that true God-centered unity in the church. Well, that the most compelling picture of God's love for the world should be the unity of God's people. Not a human attempt at unity built around our political inclinations or economic realities or racial compartmentalization, but a transcendent unity where we all humble ourselves before God and build our lives around His reality. If only we could live that out. What would that look like? Well, I believe in this text, Jesus is actually answering that question. He's telling us, upon what should we build this unity? And he begins right off the bat. He says, we build our unity on a common message from God. We build our unity on a common message from God. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is highlighting here that there's actually substantive content that can be proclaimed. Truth that can be shared. 
there is substance to what we believe. And the substance can be communicated clearly. What is the substance? It's the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. This is not an idea that somebody had one day. This is not a philosophy that an ancient Greek came up with. This is not a worldview that can be negotiated in our social context. This good news is not malleable. It's not up for debate. It is not fluid. It doesn't evolve over time, and it's not a matter of interpretation. Good news is like something you put a headline in a newspaper. It's, it's events. It's facts. It happened in the world. Like extra, extra, read all about it, and here's the good news. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. Jesus lived and showed us the clearest picture of our God, His character and nature. Jesus died and atoned for our sins and our rebellion against God. And Jesus rose again, proving himself victorious over that sin and brokenness and opening for us a way back into right relationship with our God. This is the message. This is the gospel. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. This is what happened in history. It's what's being reported in the gospels we read in the scriptures. And it is the message we proclaim. It is our common message from God. And it's around this that we begin to build our unity. Let's be very clear how this, this actually brings unity. Even let's play a little compare and contrast, shall we? This is not, hey, let's just pretend that everyone is right. Let's just affirm every possible worldview, every possible behavior, every possible concept or, or organizing principle around which we, one might, might pursue life. Pretending everyone is right, that's not unity. That might actually just be ignorance. Playing pretend works for a while. Again, as long as no one actually has any deeply held convictions and nobody actually believes what they say they believe. But what you end up with is buried hostilities that will eventually resurface and they'll be stronger than before. You can't just pretend everyone's right. But this also isn't, I'm right and you're wrong. That's also not how unity works, right? That's back into a human attempt. That's that zero-sum game. If I'm right, I win and you lose. In that equation, there's always an oppressor and there's always an oppressed. And that's power, not unity, and it mocks true peace and harmony. No, this unity is not a, I'm right and you're wrong. The message of the gospel is even harder to believe. It's we're all wrong. And we're being all offered the free gift of forgiveness together through what Christ has done on the cross. That's the message of the gospel. And people don't like it. Nobody likes being wrong. Or is that just me? The story starts beautifully. God created us in His image to reflect His beauty and glory in the world. The problem is we broke it. Sin entered the world, and sin is very much alive in our lives. The starting place for the good news is acknowledging the bad news, that we're all broken. That doesn't play well in our culture. But it completely levels the playing field, doesn't it? There's no more reason to boast if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what's beautiful is that 
as much as we like taking that verse out of context and just saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the next verse is even better for all can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes through Jesus. So what we see even as Jesus is praying for unity is that our unity is actually built first and foremost upon this common message from God that levels the playing field, demands humility, a a message that confers dignity to every human being as being of value to God, worth redeeming, and it's a proclamation of God's love to the world. Our unity begins with a common message from God that Jesus lived, Jesus died, and he rose again. And because he did, we can be reconciled with God and with one another. And that's the only possible starting point for a a visceral, a guttural, a robust unity that actually has teeth to it and which works in the world. But this message from God is only the beginning of where our unity comes from. Not only do we have a common message from God, but as Jesus continues, we see him highlight that we also share a common life with God. That's how he continues to pray. That all of them might be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, Jesus prays. That's no longer just a propositional truth that can be proclaimed. That's not just a message. That's an experience. That's a relationship with God. This sounds like John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, Jesus says, and you'll bear much fruit. Remain in me and your joy will be complete. Remain in me and you'll remain in my love. Remain in me, Jesus says, and you'll love one another. This is a a picture, this whole they also might be in us. It's a picture of experiencing God, not just as an idea or a philosophy or a religion or a set of behavioral practices, actually knowing him enjoying him and that's why this is an even deeper source of unity because it's a life with god that we share in common right this is not just me and jesus even as we were praying this morning we were being reminded that it's not just me and jesus it's we and jesus and that's what jesus is teaching even right here now i'll admit sometimes we're tempted tempted to ditch church Even me, sometimes, tempted to ditch church. Because honestly, what a mess, right? Who are we? We're tempted to pull the whole Lone Ranger Christian thing right off into the sunset because sometimes we're fed up with church. There are so many hypocrites here. People who just aren't serious about the faith. Wouldn't it be easier to just take our ball and go home? Sometimes we're fed up with the church because we've been hurt by the church. And we can't imagine trusting people again sometimes it's just arrogance and the rampant individualism of our day an anti-establishment mindset that doesn't like the idea that anyone or anything might actually have a claim or an authority over me why would i go to church what we need to see is what jesus is praying here is that we will be one together sharing a common life with god not just life with god but a common life with God. 
Jesus is praying that the church will overcome her Lone Ranger tendencies. Look, we're not a perfect group of Christians. I hope that's not news to any of you. We're far from it. We're just a group of people who are growing in our faith. And we're gradually bringing our lives under the Lordship of Jesus. So if you're part of a church, sad news, you will probably get hurt. As you will if you spend time with any group of human beings. And yes, there are hypocrites among us. Because we're not perfect yet. We're growing as God shapes us. But what's the alternative? Become a hermit, climb up to a mountaintop somewhere for this experience of God that can be hermetically sealed and kept away from anyone else who might mess it up. Uh, that's like not biblical at all, by the way. And Jesus is pretty much praying the exact opposite right here. Right? If you isolate yourself from Christian community, then you won't find the encouragement you need to keep the faith. Right? There'll be no one to laugh with you in the times of joy and no one to weep with you in the times of sorrow. No one to build you up and encourage you. No one to seek the Lord with. No one to enjoy His presence together and worship with. If you isolate yourself, you miss out on all the good that comes from all these one another's in Scripture. If you isolate yourself also, you won't have anyone there providing admonition or correction in your life. The correction you need to grow in faith. You won't have anyone in your life that will love you enough to challenge what you're thinking and to challenge the decisions you're making and to hold your life up against the Scriptures and say, who do you think you are? No one asking hard questions in your life. And you're not, therefore, learning how to give your life away for others if there are no others. And ultimately, if you isolate yourself, you cease to be an accurate reflection of our triune God who has existed for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in community within Himself. A community that had so much love and so much beauty and so much relationship that He's like, I can't keep this to myself. I'm creating humanity and I'm going to spill it out all over them and invite them in. And that as God's people, as followers of Jesus, we are invited to reflect the character and nature of God and His love as a community that reflects the eternal community of a triune God. As Jesus prays for the church, yes, He's praying for a unity that comes from a common message from God, and he's praying also about this reality of a common life with God. These are central to our understanding of unity. And then, Jesus brings it all home. Because it turns out this unity he's praying for isn't just for our benefit. Lest we get all navel-gazing and think that we're the center of the universe. Jesus actually continues to pray and says we actually are called to be a common reflection of God out in an unbelieving world. And this is spectacular, right? When Jesus continues to pray and He says, I've given them the glory that You gave Me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and You in Me so that they may be brought to completion as one. Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you've given me. And when Joel preached way back after Easter, we explored this concept of glory. And it's got sort of two nuances to it, right? 
the first nuance of God's glory is this radiant energy, this splendor. You know, when the glory of God descends on Sinai, the glory of God descends on the tabernacle, the glory of God fills the temple. The glory is such that when God's glory passes Moses by, God's got to like tuck him into a cleft in the rock lest he come apart at a molecular level because the glory and radiance of God is just too great for humanity to perceive. So on one hand, there's this side of glory, which is the radiance of God in His purity and His beauty and His holiness. That's probably not what Jesus is talking about here, where He's saying, I've given them the glory. The disciples didn't suddenly start radiating beams of light. But rather, glory has a second nuance to it. It is the making known or making knowable the very character and nature of God, which is glorious. Such that His beauty and His majesty and His holiness and His power can be perceived in the world. So that God's nature might be visible and accessible and knowable. This is the glory God gave Jesus, who is the visible image of the invisible God, Colossians 1 says. Jesus is the most complete, the most perfect representation of who God is. You want to get to know God? Look at Jesus and you'll see Him. But then, did you catch this? This is the glory that Jesus gives us that our lives are supposed to make God visible and known. That our lives are supposed to be increasingly accurate reflections of who God is as we become holy. This is what we talked about last week. And not becoming holy based on what we think is holy, because then we'll just fight about it. Not holy based on what the culture thinks is right, because that's a zero-sum game and that's not going anywhere. But holy based on what God has revealed about Himself in His Word. It is something transcendent of human culture. And it is God revealing Himself on His terms. And what Jesus is praying here is that the glory, the revelation of who God is that God gave to Jesus, Jesus is now giving to all those who would believe in His name and saying, now you go make God visible to the world. And as we saw last week, that happens as God makes us holy. And then we get to this end here so that they may be brought to completion. There's that process language, this journey that God has us on of becoming increasingly sanctified increasingly holy that our character our decisions our behavior our attitudes our hearts will become increasingly transparent so that who god is shines through us to the world we're so not perfect we are so not holy but we're being brought to completion and we're being brought to completion together And together, our corporate identity should reflect the character and nature of God. We are called to have a common reflection of God. So, let's put this all together here for a minute. If we live this out, Right by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace extended to us in Jesus. If we live in unity, and that unity is built upon a common message from God, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, a common life with God, that's actually experiencing Him and knowing Him together, and a common reflection of God, 
that as a church becomes increasingly holy, God is accurately reflected to an unbelieving world. What's the result of that? That's how Jesus ends this section of his prayer. The result is that then the world will know that you've sent me. Then the world will know that you've loved them, even as you've loved me. And here we have an affirmation of the very things Jesus has just been teaching us. The world will know that you sent me. The message that we've been proclaiming is that God sent Jesus, who lived and died and rose again. This is the gospel. This is the common message from God. And that God loves them. And here we have the the offer of a common experience of actual life with God. And that together, when we put it all together, we see that the most compelling picture of God's love for the world might actually be the unity of God's people as we build our lives not on human attempts at unity, but at God's revelation of himself. If we can live like Jesus prays, the church might be the one place on earth where grace and truth actually live together. Where where forgiveness is freely offered because it's been freely given. Where it's not my way or your way, it's His way. And where we finally find a place where there is healing and wholeness and right relationships with one another because we're in right relationship with God. That's beautiful. Is it possible? Oh God, I hope so. After all, isn't this exactly what Jesus is praying for? I am struck that Jesus prays with such relevance to our lives. The world that we live in, the moment in history in which we find ourselves. It's like Jesus knew it was coming. And he prayed right at us. In light of that, I think we are called as God's people. Part of expressing this unity is to be united in the way we express, the way we proclaim this one message. We need to give hope to an unbelieving world that says unity is possible. Peace is possible. But it's not going to be possible in a zero-sum game. We need a transcendent Savior who's above us all that we can all bring our lives under if we have any hope. And the beautiful thing is Jesus has given us that. We have a chance to proclaim an object of our unity that is greater than all of us. And it is an object who forgives and who loves and who gave his life away that we might all be one. And it is the only hope for true unity in the world. And it's not something based on our perfection or wisdom or our philosophy. It's simply based on God's love. We are called to proclaim one message. I think we're also called to let go of this whole isolation, this individualism. The way we keep the church at arm's length. We keep other believers at arm's length. And maybe it is because we've been hurt. And maybe it's because we're afraid of putting ourselves out there. Maybe this morning you might hear an invitation to risk again, to trust again, 
to put yourself out there maybe just one more time and to walk together with a community that's pursuing life with God together. And whether that's something programmed like joining a small group or whether it's just being willing to actually talk to people about your relationship with God and to be real with your struggles and to listen well to others. I'm not promising that we won't let you down. We probably will at some point. What I am promising is that when we do fail, we'll turn to Jesus together to make it right. We're called to let go of our isolation and our independence and to embrace this unity together. And I think, in light of what Jesus prayed, we are called to work hard at reconciliation. And in this, I'm not even talking about societal reconciliation. I'm not talking about political or economic or, or even racial reconciliation, although those are incredibly important. Those are just really, really big. And perhaps the key to solving those is not by tackling them in their bigness, but by becoming a people who are so proficient at reconciling just one-on-one that the overflow of that is a culture that knows how to reconcile in these massive areas. Is there someone that you need to ask forgiveness from? Someone you've hurt? And there's that part of you is like, oh, I'll just forget it. Might the Lord be calling you to actually address that? To confess and ask for their forgiveness. Is there someone that you might need to gently let them know that they've hurt you? And I'm telling you, it's easier to just sweep it under the carpet. But when you do, there's a greater divide between you. And the more you sweep, the greater the loss of real relationships. It's an invitation to reconciliation for the sake of the gospel as well as the sake of your relationship. And it requires humility on both sides, right? If one's right and one's wrong or if the other is right and this one's wrong, forgiveness doesn't happen. But when you're both wrong because we're all sinful and broken, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we can bring together in humility, come before Jesus and say, make us whole again. I'm not promising that that's easy. It takes hard work, but man, it's worth it. To live in unity, in right relationship with God and one another. We live in a world divided, in a country racked by conflict and division. We see countries torn apart by disagreement, communities driven apart by tensions, marriages broken by hurt, betrayal, and neglect, friendships divided by small hurts and large wounds. What if, What if the church was the one place on this earth where a people humbled by a common message from God, the gospel, a people who enjoy a common life and experience of God together, and where people are growing in this journey of becoming a common reflection of God? What if the church was the most compelling picture of God's love in action? The unity of God's people is the one place a broken and divided world might catch a glimpse of the supernatural, incomprehensible love of God. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that be categorically different than anything this world has to offer? Isn't that exactly what Jesus is praying for? 
Jesus is praying, we should listen. Listen.